What is it in your life that leads to the greatest frustrations, the greatest disappointments, one of the greatest sources of conflict? When, when you think of what that is, one of the things that leads to those things, the greatest source of our, our upsetness, our sorrow, it's unmet expectations. Unmet expectations, and this is true on so many levels of life. This may be a vacation that you're planning, and you go there, and uh, it's not exactly how you thought it was going to go down. You thought it was going to be restful, and it was actually more tiring. You ever feel that? You go on a vacation, you feel like you need to go on a vacation after the vacation because the vacation actually wore you down. Or maybe it's a meal. You go to a restaurant you've really been looking forward to, and they mess it up. Unmet expectations. And this is true on so many levels, but especially true and heightened in marriage. Because in marriage, it's not just unmet expectations, but often unrealistic expectations that we bring into marriage. And so tonight, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to look at marriage, but here's the thing. What we're going to talk about is, is about people and about situations. We're going to talk about people and situations in our lives. So whether you're married or unmarried, it doesn't really matter because this is going to connect to just our lives as individuals and, and what that looks like, how that plays itself out. Because in marriage, what often happens is we bring in unrealistic expectations about the world around us, about the people around us, and that then affects what happens in a marriage. People don't look closely at what the Bible says about people. They don't look closely at what the Bible says about situations in the world we live in, so then we have unrealistic expectations, unmet expectations, when we come into marriage. So what I want to do is show you two of the most common unrealistic expectations that people bring into marriage, and then talk about how the Bible helps us to transform those areas in our life. So here's the first one. The first area of unrealistic expectation is this, compatibility. And we talked about this when we talked about dating, but, but here's the thing. Many people are looking for that person that's going to be the right person for you, the right fit for you that's going to match up well with you, that's going to be the perfect person in your life. This is what the whole online dating system is built on. This is what um, the common logic in our day and age is, is find the person that's the right fit for you. Find that compatible person that matches up with all your qualities and all your things, and, and then they'll be the perfect person for you, and life will go well. Life will be wonderful and amazing after that, right? Right? But if you're married, you understand that that's not true. That, um, and that's no shame on my wife there. Anybody that is married would say that that's what happens. There's always things that you, no matter how much you line that up, you're always going to find out new things. You're always going to see that, uh, I thought they were compatible with me, but it turns out they're not, or that I'm not. Things change. People change. Maybe you start off compatible and you're no longer compatible. But see, what the Bible helps us to understand is we bring in an unrealistic expectation of compatibility, but the Bible shows us that the world we live in is broken and that people in the world are broken. So no right person is ever going to change things. No right person is ever going to make things go well. See, because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that after our first human parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, that ever since then the world has not functioned the way it's supposed to function. So we live in a broken world. We live in a world where things don't go the way we would want them to go. Where things don't go the way we want them to go. 
if you watch any Disney movies or listen to any fairy tales, here's what happens. The life is hard, things are bad, there's a wicked stepmother, there's an evil sea witch, there's horrible circumstances, things are bad. But then, Prince Charming or Princess Charming comes in, and what happens after that? Happily ever after. Now here's what's really interesting, is they get the first part of the story right. The world is broken, and things don't work the way they're supposed to work, and things don't happen the way they're supposed to happen, but they confuse us because it says, as soon as this person comes into our life, everything after that is bliss. But I wish there was a hundred more minutes of, of tape, or a couple more years of tape at the end of some of those stories, to see what happens next. Is it just happily ever after, forever? No, we live in a broken world. And many of us, though we obviously think the notion of happily ever after is silly, we still view life in that way. Once I have that person in my life, things will go the way I want them to go. And if you are married, you you realize that's not true. But if we begin with that unrealistic expectation, then things actually become more difficult. Because the world we live in is broken. People lose jobs. Children get sick. People get sick. And life around us is difficult. How many husbands or wives on their way home from work say, okay, it's 5.30 at about 6 o'clock. I think I'm going to get in a fight with my spouse. That'll be fun. That'll be great. I, I, you know, I don't want to watch those TV shows anyway. I'd like to get in a fight tonight. No one does that. But what happens is the broken world we live in, there's things that go wrong. There's bosses that are mean. There's situations that don't work the way they're supposed to. There's suffering that takes place. And then that affects spill over into our spouses, spill over into our lives. We live in a broken world and it affects the relationships that we have. But if we come in thinking, man, everything's going to be great, it's not going to be. Our marriages and your relationships, this is true, much of what I'm saying is true just for anybody, whether you're married or not, the, the lives that we live, the marriages that we have, are conducted in a broken world. They're conducted in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And likewise, people don't work the way they're supposed to work. It's not just the broken world, it's people themselves. That we are looking for a compatible person, this person that will be the perfect fit for us, but what the Bible says, that people are sinful. The Bible says you're going to enter into a relationship with two sinners. So there was some sin here, and then there was some sin here, and you actually exponentially compounded it when you bring them together. So you might be finding someone very compatible with your sin, but it's still, compatible. It's still sin. Here's what the Bible says about our lives. Because I know even that word sin sometimes. What does that mean? Here's what the Bible says. Here's uh, the Apostle Paul talking in 2 Corinthians And there's a lot in this verse, but I want to show you one piece of this. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now here's what I want you to see here. When Jesus comes, when Jesus begins to change someone's life, they move from one state to another state. They move from one current reality to a different reality. And here's, here's the reality before Jesus living for themselves. That the propensity in all of our hearts is to live for ourselves, to build our lives on ourselves. 
And this is the propensity of every human heart. It's to live for yourself. The direction of your heart that it naturally flows in is to live for yourself. And many people wouldn't even disagree with this. I mean, this can actually be taught as a virtue. Live for yourself, follow your heart, follow your dreams. I mean, living for yourself. That is the direction that all of our hearts naturally go in. Especially true before you are a Christian, but definitely still true after you are a Christian. That that's the propensity that your heart flows in. To live for yourselves, to essentially function as a little God of your life. To live for yourself. That's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Is that we are people that build our own little kingdoms. Build our lives with ourselves as ultimate authority. With ourselves as the one that govern things. Our wishes, our desires, our plans, our goals, our dreams. Living for ourselves. And here's what happens. If you're looking for that person that's compatible with you. You're looking for that person that's going to be the perfect fit in your life, but you don't understand that you're actually bringing someone into your life that is fundamentally has a propensity and a drive to live for themselves. That's going to create a lot of conflict because this affects how we even begin our relationships. Here's what happens. We live these lives and we're living for ourselves. And we're constructing our lives built on what we want, what makes us feel good, what our plans are, what our desires are. We're building these lives. We're building these kingdoms. And we often begin relationships looking at somebody and saying, you know what? That person would make a good fit in my life that I'm building. This person would make a good fit in the kingdom that I'm building. So often we even assess a partner based on that. Hmm, I think they would actually fit good in the life that I'm building. I think they would be a good addition, whether because of their income or because of how they'll make me look or because in my life that I'm building for myself, I want people that think I'm funny, people that respect me, people that think I'm wise. That makes my life feel really good that I'm building and they help that. So we even assess somebody based on how they fit into the lives that we're building for ourselves. But... They're doing the same thing. And what happens is, when we start a marriage, many times, it's fitting this person into the life we're building. It's not saying, I'm going to get rid of that and start a new life with somebody else. We still view them as fitting into the life that we're building. A life for ourselves. That's how we view them. It affects how we even begin our relationships And what this means also is that every person's fundamental battle is vertical first, not horizontal. See, if the fundamental issue is that we live for ourselves and not for God, then what that means is that the essential battle that's taking place in somebody's heart is, am I living for God or am I living for myself? It's any conflict you have, any argument you have, any tension you have, any disagreement you have. It's not fundamentally even at this level between two people. It's first a battle between a person and God, between living for yourself and between living for God. Often we personalize things even more than we should. Really, it's a vertical battle before it's ever a horizontal battle. It's a God-oriented battle before it is an interpersonal battle. 
So it affects how we even begin our relationship, trying to fit somebody into our kingdom that we're building. And then it affects the duration of it. It affects how we actually live in it. Because as we're building these lives for ourselves, here's what happens. We assess the other person based on how they are doing in our kingdom. We assess them based on that. And if, and if, they're, if they're helping us to live life for ourselves, we love them. They're wonderful. Whatever life it is that you're building for yourself, if somebody's actually helping you do that, Oh man, you might be deeply thankful to them. You might appreciate them so much. You might love them. You might feel affection for them because they are helping you to build this life. And if they don't do it, what happens? You get frustrated. You get angry. You might have deep bitterness towards that person. Maybe it's not even spoken. Maybe it can go on even for years. I was building this life for myself, and I thought you were going to fit into it, and I thought you were going to help me. I thought you were going to be a great addition to this life I was building for myself, and, and sometimes you do it good, and it feels so great, but man, right now, you're not. And it's bitterness, and it's anger, or it's comparison Maybe that person would be a good fit in my life. Maybe, man, did I make the wrong choice? I should have had that person. Maybe it's fantasies to begin to think about how somebody else would fit in your life. Maybe it's pornography where you begin to think about somebody else and you want a better, more attractive fit in your life. Maybe it's just apathy and complacency that forget about it. They're not doing it, and they're never going to do it. So I'm just going to go on with my life. It can lead to all sorts of things. And the way that we essentially look at another person is, are they helping me get the life I'm building, or are they hindering me from getting the life that I'm building? Are they a tool for me to keep building this life, or are they an obstacle getting in the way of me building this life? What's happening What's happening? And that's how we evaluate how they're doing. That's how we evaluate their performance as how well they're doing and helping us build the life we're trying to build. We evaluate them based on that. I mean, let me ask you this. And this, again, this is, as as you can see, what I'm talking about is not even just for marriage. This is true for anybody. Do you get upset? Do you get frustrated most By the violation of God's laws or the violation of yours? You see, if you're married or if there's another person in your life you're thinking of that this relates to, when you get frustrated at them, when you get angry at them, when you get upset at them, is it because you're grieved that they're not following God's laws for their life, that they're, not, that they're not walking in line with the good news of Jesus in their life, that they're not enjoying God in their life? Is that what upsets you or is it... They're violating the laws of the life that you're building for yourself. They're violating the laws of your little country, your little kingdom that you're building. What upsets you? What hurts you? What makes you grieved? What makes you bitter? If we're building our lives for ourselves, then we assess and judge somebody based on how well they're helping us do this or how much they're hindering us from doing that. 
But see, if we're looking for this compatible person, if we're looking for this perfect person that fits into our life, it's an unrealistic expectation because the Bible says that we live in a broken world and we're broken people. That we live in a world that does not operate according to how God intended it to and we as people do not operate how God intends us to. But if we enter in with this, we're going to be severely disappointed. And here's the thing. You'll be very frustrated by this. You'll be very frustrated by this if your second unrealistic expectation that is very common is that what you want out of marriage is happiness. See, if, if, you, if you want happiness out of marriage, if that's the driving force, I want someone that's going to make me happy. If that's what you want out of marriage you're going to be really disappointed because we just discussed you're not going to get that compatible person that fits into your life, but you're going to conduct marriage in a sinful, fallen, broken world with sinful, fallen, broken people. But if your desire and if your goal is, man, I'm going to come into marriage and it's going to make my life happy. I'm going to come into marriage and I'm going to find someone that's going to make me happy. Then you're going to be severely disappointed. You're going to be severely disappointed because... Most people live their lives pursuing happiness when what God wants for your life is holiness. Now, yes, God wants a deep joy in your life. He does. But God wants your transformation. God wants your change. God wants your holiness. But if you enter into marriage thinking, and if you live life thinking, I want happiness out of life, then over and over and over again, if that's your expectation, you're going to be frustrated, disappointed, sad, sorrowful. Because what God is after is something different. Here's how Peter says this, one of Jesus' closest friends. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various Trials, they come in all sorts of different ways, all sorts of different times, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter says. What God is after in all the different trials that we face and all the different things that we face that grieve us, that bother us, that annoy us, that hurt us, that frustrate us. What God is after in that is to purify your faith. You see, you take gold, and what do you do with gold? You take gold, and it's got all these impurities and all these imperfections in it, and all these different elements mixed in with the gold. And a craftsman will take this gold and have it over the fire and burn it with heat, and melt it with heat to purify it, to make it something better, to make it what it's truly intended to be. And what Peter says is, one day we'll stand before Jesus at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we will actually be something glorious. We will be something glorious on that day. And that's what God is after. God is the gentle, loving Father that's the craftsman that holds us in the fire. Because he wants to let all the impurities, all the imperfections, all the different elements that are mixed in with us go away. 
God is always after this in your life because he loves you, because he cares for you, and he he loves you enough not to let you just have happiness, but he wants more for you than that. He wants something better for you than that. He wants you to become who you're actually made to be. But if you view, I'm entering into marriage because I'm going to have happiness, well, you're not going to receive that. Now, yes, there's going to be happiness in marriage, and yes, I hope all of our marriages are filled with happiness. Yes. But if that's the main desire, the main driving force in your marriage or in your life, you'll be disappointed because all the time you're going to see various trials, various trials of all different sorts, of all different kinds. God is at work doing this in your life all the time, all the time. It's not, look, most of life is not the big moments. You're born, big moment. You graduate, I know I skipped a lot in there. For some of you, you're advanced, but you're born, you graduate, big moments. You get married, big moments. You buy your first house, big moment. You have your first child, big moment. You die, big moment. The grand finale, right? Most of life is not that. Most of life is lived in between. Most of life is Monday morning at 8 a.m. Most of life is being in traffic on Tuesday at 5.45. Or 6.45 or 8.45 for some of you. Most of life is the slow internet connection. Will Farrell had this funny quote I saw this week where he said, do not marry someone until you give them a computer with a slow internet connection because you'll see who they really are. That's very true. Amen, Will. Most of life is lived in those little moments. And God is at work in those little moments all the time. Various trials to test, to purify your faith, to purify who you are, to purify your relationship with him and who he's made you to be. All of these little moments. See, often couples have these big fights or even they wait to discuss something or wait to have an argument about something until it's this big thing. But life is lived in little moments frustrations and building your life on yourself, self-centeredness, little moments. I mean, people always joke when they talk about marriage about how you put the toilet paper on the thing or how you roll the toothpaste or putting the toilet seat up and down and all these little silly things, right? But it's in the little moments. It's in the little moments that our self-centeredness is revealed. It's in the little moments that God is pursuing us and showing us who we are, where we need to change. It's in those various trials. Yes, there will be big ones. There will be big trials. But it's the little ones that your life is filled with. It's the Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and phone conversations and text messages. It's the little moments that our self-centeredness is revealed. It's the little moments where we build our life on ourselves, And it's in those little moments that God wants to bring change. See, change doesn't just take place on these big things. I'm going to change my life. It takes place in these little moments, these little decisions, these little applications. God is after that in your life because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he wants your good. 
He wants to bring various trials into your life to purify you, to make you who he's designed you to be. And you know what I believe also? I think God is, if you're married, he's brought a, he's brought a spouse into your life that's uniquely designed to annoy you. <laughs> to uniquely designed to frustrate you. Uniquely designed to bother you. I believe that. I mean, I know that doesn't sound super romantic, but it's probably not what you're going to put in a Valentine's card this, this, this weekend. But I believe that God has brought someone in your life uniquely designed to rub the rough edges off of you for God to show you where he wants to purify you. I believe he also brings people into your life uniquely designed to help love you and serve you and speak truth into you on a positive angle of it. Because marriage isn't just going to show you that the other person is sinful, that the other person builds their life on themselves. It's not going to just show you that. It's going to show you that about your own heart. When I got married, I realized way more how selfish I was than I ever thought. I thought I was great. And then I realized I wasn't. And I'm still realizing that. But marriage reveals and shows you another sinner, another self-centered, another person building their life on themselves coming in And then it shows that that's who you really are. It shows the lies you believe about yourself. It shows the lies you believe about God. It shows the other things that you love in your life more than God. It shows the ways that you're building your life on yourself. It reveals, marriage is a magnifying glass. It brings all of that out. It puts it right in your face and you can't get away from it anymore. You can't excuse it anymore. It's right there and you see it. Why? Because once again, God wants to use that to purify by fire and make you into something more precious than gold. God wants to use all of those things in your life to destroy the kingdom that you're building. He wants to destroy the life that you build for yourself. All the other things that you find identity in, all the other things that you're living for, all the other things that you find worth in and value in instead of Him, God wants to peel those things away to break those things out of your life. He wants to explode those things. That's what he's after for you. When you pray even, how often do you pray, Lord, make me holy. God, bring trials in my life to purify me. Hardly ever. We pray for happiness. We pray for prosperity. We pray for fulfillment. And yet what God most wants is to make you somebody new, to make you someone more precious than gold. That's what God's after in your life. And he's going to do whatever he can to tear away the kingdom that we build for ourselves so that we'll be a part of his. To tear away our lives that are focused on us so that they can be focused on him. To tear away everything else that we find identity and meaning and value and purpose in so we find that instead in him. He's always going to be doing that. He's after that in your life because he loves you. Because he loves you. It's his grace to you. It's his love for you that does that. There's this great, um, this great scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where C.S. Lewis writes this book and there's this character named Eustace that's a, uh, a little boy and he's a selfish little kid, annoying little kid. And he's um, British. I don't know if that. I don't know if those two go together, or if that's just um, happenstance. No offense to my British brothers and sisters. But here's what happens with Eustace. 
Eustace finds gold, okay? And he wants to keep it all for himself because he's selfish, because he builds his life on himself. And he finds gold and he wants it all for him. And then he falls asleep on the gold and he wakes up as a dragon. Now, some of you might think that's cool. Wow, that's awesome, but no. What's happening is the inner part of his heart, which is dragony, becomes the exterior of who he is. He becomes not a boy anymore, but a dragon. His self-centered life transforms him into a dragon. And now he wants to change. He wants to change, and he tries to tear the dragon's skin off himself. And it looks like it works, and he sees it sitting on the ground, but then he looks at himself and he's still a dragon. So he tries a second time and he tears it off and it looks like it's on the ground, but still doesn't work. It's back on him. He tries a third time and he tears it off and it's still there. And then Aslan comes. And Aslan is a lion who represents Jesus in these books. And Aslan comes to him and says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to tear the dragon skin off. And let me read to you what takes place. And as I read it, here's a scene from the movie. Here's what Eustace says. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it, hurt like, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. So here's what he says. He says that Aslan, Jesus tears this stuff off and it goes right to his heart. It goes right to his heart. And when he tried to tear it off, it didn't hurt. When Aslan came and teared it off, it hurt worse than anything he'd felt before. But that's what truly changed him. That's what truly transformed him. That's what truly made him back to who he was supposed to be, who he's meant to be. See, God is doing that in your life all the time. And you might think you're trying to change your life. You might think you're trying to correct your life. But it's just kind of scratching. It takes God to go into the heart level. It takes God to come and peel away the layers. And I love what he says when he says that he looks at his skin laying on the ground. And it was ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Because Aslan truly tears away everything to make him who he's supposed to be. That's what God wants to do. God wants to scratch the dragon out of you, and he uses marriage to do that. He uses the various trials in our life to do that. So, we bring into marriage an unrealistic expectation that we're going to find this compatible, perfect person, and then we realize that people are sinful And the world is sinful. The people are broken and the world is broken. And then that's going to really bother us and frustrate us if we're pursuing happiness. And we don't see that God's using all of that to make us somebody new. So how does a proper view 
How does worship of God actually change all of this? See, if we're building our lives on ourselves, then these expectations, when they're unmet, when they're unrealistic, will lead to conflict and frustration and disappointment. But if we worship God, which is to say if we live our life for Him, with Him at the center, if we worship Him in particular ways, this changes everything. Let me give you a few ways that worshiping God for who he is in different ways will change parts of your marriage. It could, I could go endlessly about this, but I just want to show you a few ways of how worshiping God in particular ways changes your marriage. The first is this. If you worship God as creator, if you worship him as creator, then all of those things you look at in your spouse that are different, they don't cause conflict anymore. See, is your spouse different from you? Are there even parts of them that maybe used to attract you, that you were drawn to, and now annoy you? At first, they were kind of these peculiar oddities that made you go, they're interesting, and now they're really annoying. Or maybe you look at their background and their experience and what they bring in when you got married, and it's very different from the background and experience that you bring in. And many times we go, well, this way is right and this way is wrong, but often it's just different. But if we worship that there's a creative God that's made everybody different, he's made everyone's nose different and everyone's hair different and everyone's laugh different and everyone's smile different and everyone's approach to life different. You know, my wife loves tradition and I don't. My wife loves steadiness and having things the same. And I like variety and mixing things up. I always order something new. She always orders the same thing. And those are more superficial things, but those can affect all sorts of things in a relationship. If I think, well, this is right. Variety is right. And new things are right. And fast is right. But if I worship God as a creator, then I can look at my wife and appreciate and honor the differences and see that he is a creative God that's made someone way different than I am. See, if you worship God as a creator, instead of building your life on yourself, if you begin to look upward and go, there's a creative God that put this person in my life. And I worship that you're creative, God. Thank you that this person's different. Thank you that they have different background and experiences and that things that might bother you, instead you can actually appreciate and see that he's creative. Instead, what we often do is trying to The Bible says we're made in God's image, but often we try to make someone else in our image. We try to take somebody and go, okay, well, there's some things that aren't quite right with you. I need need to make you more like me. But that still is viewing our life at the center. Instead of coming to somebody and being able to worship God as creator, so appreciate, respect, and honor the differences in another person. So there's one way. If you worship God as creator, how it changes things. Here's another way. If you worship God as savior, that changes how you approach the relationship with your spouse or, once again, the relationship with anybody in your life. This is for anybody. If you worship God as savior, if you worship God as savior, then here's what that does. That immediately brings humility. Because if you understand that you're somebody that needed saving by Jesus, that you are someone that builds your life on yourself, and the Bible teaches that Jesus came, 
that he lived the life we should live. He died the death we should die in our place to bring us into relationship with himself. If you worship that God, then you immediately are humbled and know, man, there's always parts of my heart that are sinful. There's always parts of my heart that are self-centered. There's always parts of my heart that are building my life on myself. You're immediately then never the most righteous person in the room. You're immediately then not able to have defensiveness because there's always something that you can look at and go, yeah, I worship someone that's the savior, so I'm sure there is sin in me. I'm sure there is self-centeredness in me. I'm sure there is selfishness in me. I'm sure that at least some of what you're saying is true. If you worship a God that's a savior, that gives you humility. If you're not humble, if you're continually defensive, if your spouse always feels like they're wrong and you're right, then you're not rightfully worshiping God as a savior. Because you don't believe you really have anything to be saved from. If you worship God as Savior, that changes. You're never, there, there's never only one sinner in the room. There's never only one self-centered person in the room. There's always somewhere that you can repent. There's always somewhere that you can own and say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong here. If you worship a God that's a Savior... And it means this. It means you want to become a part of his work in their life. See, if you worship a God that is a savior, then you want to join in with him in that in people's lives. If you worship God as savior, then when you see someone else's sin, when you see your spouse's sin, you want to be a part of his transformation in their life. You want to be a part of that. See, here's the thing. God is going to let you see. If you're married, God is going to let you see the other person's sin all the time. All the time. You're going to see it up close and personal. And what are you going to do with that? If you worship a God that is a savior, then you view that as an opportunity to be a part of his work in their life. But here's what often happens. When we're sinned against, when our spouse sins against us, we become against them. How could you do this to me? I'm now against you instead of for them. See, if we have a view of God as Savior, then when we're sinned against, we look at that and go, wow, there's, there's an area that I can join in with God to love them, to serve them. Instead of being against them, we become for them. Instead of, instead of saying, you attacked me, you see a window that God is showing you in their life where he is refining, where he is purifying, and you then want to be a part of that and help them and love them, not because of its effect on you, but because you want them to become who God's making them to be. If you worship as a God, as a savior, then you're never going to throw their sin in their face. You're never going to make them feel guilty for how their sin's cramping your style, affecting your life. You're never going to keep a long list of all these wrongs that they've done against you if you worship a God that is a Savior. If you worship a God that is a Savior, you both are humbled and you joyfully want to be a part of His work in their life. That changes how you fight. It changes how you argue. It changes how you view their sin in a particular moment. 
that instead of viewing it as an attack, you view it as an opportunity to love, to serve, to help. There's a reason God showed it to you. There's a reason he allowed you to see that. It's his grace. It's his love for them and for you. And finally, if we worship a God that is a God of love, then that changes us as well. See, there's this idea about love languages or emotional needs or different things along this sort of line. And here's the concept. The concept is that we all have different ways that we're best loved or we all have different emotional needs. You may have a a need to be um, loved with time or physical touch or uh, words or acts of service or gifts or all these different things. And there's a lot of helpful stuff in that that we should love people in unique ways. But here's one of the central ideas to this whole thing. It's that we are people that have emotional tanks or love tanks And they're empty. We have this emotional love tank that is empty. And it needs to be filled with love in order for us to give out love. So what these authors and thinkers would say, what they would recommend is, here's what happens. You're empty. So you need to, and and your spouse is empty also. So you need to find out the unique ways that they need to be loved. And that makes a love deposit in their love bank and fills up their love tank. I'm mixing the different metaphors, banks and tanks. Confusing if you're in the military, but or the financial industry. It's empty. And if you love your spouse, you make a deposit so it fills up a little bit. If you love them all the ways they're supposed to be loved, it's full. And now what can they do? Now, because they're full of love, they can give to you, which then fills up your love, and then you can give to them. And so it's this great, reciprocal, beautiful thing. Now, here's the good insight in that. The good insight is that it's true that we cannot love unless there's an outside source that fills us with love first. That's true. But here's the problem. Your spouse does not have the power to fill up your love tank bank. Okay? They don't have the power to do that. And there's going to be seasons and times in life, whether because of busyness or sickness or selfishness, that they aren't making love deposits. So where are, how is your tank going to be full if they don't actually have the power to do that and if there's going to be plenty of seasons in life where they're not reciprocating and they're not doing that? You need a love outside of yourself that's more powerful. You need a love outside of yourself that actually allows you to do that. Let's take a look one more time at this verse. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, you should live for God. You should live for Jesus. That's impossible. Do you know that? See, everything I'm talking about, don't live with yourself at the center. Don't build your life on yourself. Don't operate in your marriage with yourself at the center. Don't do that. That's bad. It's destructive. It's unrealistic. It'll cause turmoil and conflict and frustration and sorrow and bitterness. Don't do that. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to live for God 
It's impossible for you to live for Jesus if you have not first seen that he's lived for you. Paul says that the love of Christ controls us. The love of your spouse does not have the power. It does not have the power to make you a loving person. It does not have the power to fill you up in such a way that you are able to love the other person. It doesn't have that power. You need something supernatural. You need a greater love, a deeper love, a more powerful love. This is talking about Jesus coming to earth. And this love that we see, this is a love of a God that came to earth and loved us when we were not friends, that loved us when we were enemies, that loved us not because of our goodness, not because of the greatness of our lives. This is what's different about the gospel, about Christianity, than everything else. Everything else says live your life in a good way and God will accept you. Live your life in a good way and you can go to heaven. Live your life in a good way and you will be accepted by God. This says something way different. This says that Jesus came to earth and loved us when we did not love him. That Jesus came to earth and loved us when we had not done anything to deserve that. That it was his grace and his mercy, not our goodness. That he lived for us and he died for us. And if we take that into our hearts, that love of Christ controls us to be able to then love other people in such a way. To be able to then love your spouse in such a way. To be able to then love your family and love your city and love your neighbors in such a way. If that love goes down into your heart, that changes you. That's what the Bible teaches That we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. You don't want to build your life on yourself? You want to build it on God? Great. But that's impossible without taking the love of Christ down into your heart. Without swallowing it deeply inside of you. So it changes you from the inside out. It's a nice notion to think of not living for yourself, but it's impossible without that. It's impossible unless you worship a God of love. It's impossible unless you see there is a God that loved me through and through. There is a God that loved me, though I didn't deserve it. Then you're able to love. See, if you take these three different things, and there's much more that could be said about this, but even think about this in little moments that you go, God, I'm kind of annoyed by these differences in this person right now. But I remember and worship you as a creator. So, God, I confess I'm annoyed by these differences. I confess that I'm bothered and they rub me the wrong way. And I think I'm right and that they're wrong. But, Lord, I know you're a creator. I know you're a creator. And actually, I thank you then for making them in this way. Or you're in the middle of something and you're defending yourself and you're asserting your rightness and you stop and you go, God, thank you that you've saved me. I worship a God that has saved me. Thank you for that. I know I'm a sinful person. I know I'm a person that builds my life on myself, but I thank you that you're a savior. Help me to be a part of your saving work in their life. That changes you in that moment. And when you're not feeling loved, 
And when you say, hey, if you respect me, I'll respect you. If you appreciate me, I'll appreciate you. If you love me, I'll love you. If you fill up my love tank, I'll fill up your love tank. If you make love deposits, I'll make love deposits. If you do this, then I'll do that. If you work for me, then I'll work for you. If you serve me, then I'll serve you. If you give me gifts, then I'll give you gifts. If you spend time with me, then I'll spend time with you. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. When you do all that and then you stop and you go, God, you are a God of love that has loved me before I ever loved you. You're a God that loved me, though I never deserved it. That changes your heart. That melts your heart. And you do that in the daily, every day-to-day moments, and for the rest of your life, that's where true joy is found. That's where God changes you and makes you to be who he's called you to be and where you experience life as he intends.